Hi, and welcome to episode 20 of the Untethered Podcast. Today, I have the honor of bringing on Dr. James Ryan, who's a dear colleague of mine. Dr. Ryan was formerly was the assistant program director at the Department of Oral and Maxofacial Surgery and attending surgeon at Washington Hospital Center. Additionally, he was involved in clinical activities and participated in many research protocols at the National Institute of Health and National Institute of Dental and Craniofacial Research. His clinical and research interests are focused in a adult and pediatric trauma surgery, orthognathic, dental implant, dental alveolar, and maxillofacial reconstruction. Dr. Ryan holds a Doctor of Dental Surgery degree from New York University College of Dentistry and a Master's of Science degree from Northeastern University, Booth College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences in Boston, Massachusetts. He completed an oral and maxillofacial surgical residency at Washington Hospital Center, where he served as a clinical fellow at the Johns Hopkins Hospital and as a chief resident at Washington Hospital Center. He also held several teaching positions, including assistant professor while at NYUCD. Dr. Ryan has received numerous awards, including 2006 American Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgeons Dental Student Award, Washington Hospital Center's 2008 Nurses' Choice Physician Collaboration Award, and the 2011 Outstanding Surgical Attending in the Department of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery at Washington Hospital Center. Additionally, he was elected into the prestigious Omicron Kappa Upsilon National Honor Dental Society. He has also authored and published several journal articles and research findings. Quick disclaimer, all information, content, and material of this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and is for the informational purpose only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to the Untethered Podcast. I am your host, Hallie Balkin. I'm a certified orofacial myologist, feeding specialist, and mentor. This podcast is all about getting your questions answered and collaborating with colleagues to bring you the most up-to-date information in the orofacial myofunctional therapy, tethered oral tissue, and airway space. I challenge you to keep an open mind and join my mission to get this information out to the masses. Let's get started. First, I want to thank you, James, for being on the podcast today. I'm excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. It's a great honor and pleasure to speak to you. Absolutely. Well, you know, we're both local and we, we refer, you know, between each other. Um, we've had a lot of shared cases, I should say. And it's been a pleasure getting to learn more about tongue ties and releases and different methods of um, releasing as well as the tools out there, you know, from some of our conversations in the past. But I'm really excited to talk about the disconnect between, you know, parents and physicians and dentists regarding tongue ties and the research that either is out there or is not out there that's still needed um, to close the gap between all the professionals that are in this space. So, you know, let's, let's start talking about that disconnect that from your perspective? Well, first of all, I, I'd like to thank you for um, having me because I think this will help with that disconnect because part of the problem is communication. Um, that seems to be the biggest factor in the issue with the disconnect between physicians, pediatricians, um, speech and language pathologists, dentists, you know, on and on. Uh, the real issue, um, so what happens is, is parents get into this um, like area of, like in the, they're basically trapped in the middle of all of these surrounding physicians and people telling them what to do, what not to do, what is, what isn't, you know, they have a tongue tie, they don't have a tongue tie, and then they get on Facebook, and then there's just a whole nother other issue there, you know, with people sharing their personal, personal experiences, which is super important. 
and helpful. But the real issue is, is that you need to have a standardized way of uh, looking at these things. And there's just from my experience, you know, and I've read all of the research in speech and language pathology and oral surgery and ENT, and there just hasn't been a consensus definition for a tongue tie. Um, and when you go to medical school, you read Bates Medical, um, you know, history and physical, and there's like one line in there about tongue tie, <laughs> and that's it. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's no, certainly, um, it's not unreasonable to expect that a lot of physicians, you know, will even say like, there doesn't happen. There's no such thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there really is one line about tongue tie in there. And we found that um, that's just not the case. I mean, the, um, the tongue is super important for lots of issues, uh, for eating, for swallowing, for jaw manipulation, for facial molding, for articulation, for nursing, for lots of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the difficulties I found was is that you know, trying to figure out in which instance you want to correct and which instance you don't want to correct because sometimes, you know, you have these outliers of infants that can have a severe tongue tie uh, and nurse just fine mm-hmm. and speak just fine. And then on the other side of it, you can have a very mild tongue tie and not be able to nurse at all and not be able to speak at all. So there's, you know, these are these outliers here and this is what complicates things. Um, also, you have the fact that it's not just about the anatomical location. We're talking about function. And function is a different issue when you're dealing with research. And research is really kind of about um, absolutes. And when you have functional problems, there really aren't any absolutes. So what we've tried to do is try to form a consensus definition of tongue ties in infants to zero, from zero to six months of age. Um, And we thought this was a good age range because when we get older than that, then the functional components become much different. Um, And that's when we start having to look at speech and language and myofascial therapy and chiropractic care and things like this. And really sort of our initial work was to look at whether or not we correct tongue ties in infants to zero from zero to six months of age and what diagnostic criteria we would use. Because one of the things that I don't want to do is I don't want to overtreat infants. I don't want to, um, you know, just cut everything that comes in. I don't want to undertreat them either. So there's easy decisions to make. And those are like the, the, when the insertion of the frenum on the tongue inserts into the anterior portion of the tongue, and pretty much everybody agrees on that. It's really when it gets to like a Kotlow classification three and four that become very difficult. And even sometimes, you know, you have this terminology of posterior tongue tie, which uh, took me forever to figure out what people were referring to this. (laughs) (laughs) What is a posterior tongue (laughs) tie? So um, what we did is we, um, in, in order to sort of determine you know, because it's a functional issue, uh, we did a, um, I called in some powerhouses um, from NYU um, in the epidemiology department, who is the chair of epidemiology, Dr. Ralph Katz, who is probably one of the most brilliant epidemiologists I've ever run into. Um, one of the best courses I ever took. We remain friends to this day. I had him in my first year of dental school. And he's very passionate about research. Um, And he's done tons of these sort of functional problems. 
And another sort of side issue, one of the things would be um, he ran, ran the campaigns for oral cancer. They had all the subway signs in New York City about this. That's awesome. And then they, then they did um, some research on TMJ, which is a, you know, so it sort of falls into this sort of uh, area of like functional problems, right? When do you treat? When do you not treat? Um, and then trying to identify the source. Is it really the tongue tie? Is it something else? Is it motor function? Is it, you, you know, there's like all these kinds of different outliers that can be a problem. Mm-hmm. And he was telling me that in the TMJ studies that they, when they were doing the consensus, it was so bad at like trying to come to a consensus definition that they basically referred to the TMJ as that thing. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. Well, it's good to know it's not just thoughts that you have this issue with. <laughs> so I think he found this a lot easier to deal with. <laughs> funny. Um, so we, we pulled a panel of experts who we found to be experts based on their education, their um, research, um, how involved they are in different organizations, uh, related to tongue ties and research and and um, these kinds of things. So this is where we identified them. And they're in in our study. You can you can see who they are and their level of education, their research experience, all of these things to sort of identify. You know, just an expert panel. Um, and they're from all over the United States. Um, we've included. You know, we've tried to include somebody from every specialty that deals with infants from zero to six months of age of who the most prominent providers that parents would see. So that would be like pediatricians, uh, ENTs, oral surgeons. Um, We did not include lactation consultants. Not sure why we didn't do that, but I think it was going to make things a little bit more difficult as far as uh, coming to a consensus. Uh, Mm -hmm. We're really kind of looking at anatomical function, but also the functionality of it, which they would have been really helpful for the functionality part of it. And that's probably our next subject that we'll look at with speech Mm -hmm. and language and lactation consultants, and then also define it in a different age range. So basically a Delphi study, for those that aren't familiar, is basically it's a way to tease out information and remove minority beliefs and, you know, things that are, you know, hearsay versus things that are like super important. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that Delphi studies do is it's basically an expert roundtable, but it's done long distance. So nobody's really sitting together. And the best part of this is that nobody gets the same questionnaire. So nobody can talk to each other and think that somebody knows more than the other one. So they're just going to say, yes, I agree with that one. Mm-hmm. So it's really kind of just based at getting their information without the input from other people that they may think may know more than they do. So we went through four rounds. And we uh, developed um, a pathway. There's, there's two pathways now that we hope to use this criteria in future research for other people to use as a baseline definition. So then all of the other research that follows can have and add a lot of power mm-hmm. to the research so that now we're all talking the same language. We're all talking the um, same information, using the same information, and it's re- reproducible. And just to clarify, you're talking about a definition for tongue tie. Yes, correct. Born in birth to six months. Yes. So that's kind of where we are. Um, and that was the point of the study. And I think um, it probably will be linked to, the, to this podcast. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes so that people can see your, the criteria for the definition. Right. Yeah, right. absolutely. So um, again, back to the disconnect. The, um, the reason that their parents are sort of 
in this sort of limbo area surrounded by all of these different providers and they're not all in agreement usually is uh, there's a couple of reasons. One is nursing has sort of dropped off in the 80s and 90s. Uh, we know now from the Department of Public Health that nursing is the best way to go and that the formula companies are were really good at marketing in the 80s and 90s. Mm. So there's a disconnect there between mothers and now new mothers, so they're not able to help. Um, that's one. The second issue is, is that um, going back to the education of physicians and pediatricians, um, if they don't know what they don't see, they don't know what they don't know. Right. And if they don't know about it, then it doesn't exist. Right. Uh, right. So, <laughs> if, yep. I mean, so, and just even in their, it, and it's no fault of their own. It just is just the way that the medical education is set up. And it's also very conservative. It's meant to be conservative so that you don't overtreat and do things that are unnecessary. So there's the good part of it, but there's also the bad part of it. And also you have, you know, so say you have a parent who's nursing, they go to their pediatrician and the pediatrician is like, no, it doesn't, they don't have a tongue tie. And then they go see somebody else and they're like, oh yes, they have a tongue tie. And then they go see somebody else and they're like, I don't know. <laughs> it happens all the time around here. <laughs> Can't say I don't get at least, you know, one call yeah. a week. <laughs> yeah. So historically what has happened, I think lactation consultants have been a huge key in identifying and sort of bringing to light and making sure that this sort of progresses in a research area. Um, because they're really kind of the ones that are dealing with the dyad. Um, so you have the pediatricians dealing with the child, you have the OBGYNs dealing with the mom, and then you have the lactation consultants dealing with the dyad. So they're really the ones that are going to be super helpful in identifying these types of issues. And they should be. So um, I'm glad that they exist. I'm glad that they're there for sure. Well, I think it's a little challenging too, because depending on what type of lactation or IDCLC or who you go to, a lot of them don't have diagnosing tongue ties or lip ties in their scope, unless they also have an RN or, you know, additional certifications that allow them to diagnose. So I think that's also, you know, well, and some of them might diagnose anyways, but I think it's also just further confusion for parents because then you get a lactation, a lactation consultant who is fantastic, who's now describing what they see, but they may not give you the formal diagnosis. And then they send you on back to your pediatrician who looks at you like you have three heads and go, that doesn't exist. So yeah, right. you get this a lot. Right. It happens, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And then usually typically or historically, you know, in the past 10 years or so, mothers would give up nursing and start breastfeeding and bottle feeding. And then they would go see their dentist when the primary teeth came in. Right. So that was a recommendation by the American Academy of Pediatric Dentists is you see a pediatric dentist when your infant has a first eruption of teeth, which is around anywhere from about eight to 12 to 14 months or so. Um, and by then, you know, if, if nursing hasn't been successful, you know, then they're done. And now you have a tongue tie, but you know, they're not gonna do anything about it at that point because they didn't even know that it was a nursing problem. Mm -hmm. um, and the dentists weren't communicating with the lactation consultants initially, you know, so they didn't know that these things were even relevant. Mm -hmm. um, and then they say, well, you know, you can correct it if you want, because we don't see a lot of problems with them just from a dental standpoint. As far as tongue ties go? Is that what as you're saying? As far as tongue ties go, you know, like 
just on a functional, because we don't deal with functional issues, mostly. There's not a whole lot of functional issues other than ortho and things like that. Um, so we really deal with anatomical issues and, you know, like caries, disease, pathology, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you see a tongue tie, you know, chances are, you know, if you're not nursing, you're not having speech difficulties, we're probably maybe or maybe not correct. It depends on how severe it is and how loose this tissue. Mm-hmm. And the functionality part of that is, is also th- getting back to the point of the functionality of it is that the tissue can be very tight or it can be very loose. So it can right. be in a very bad location, but it can be very loose and function appropriately. Mm-hmm. Or it can be in a very good location, but be very tight. So this tissue uh, type is also important. And that's not something that is easily identified unless, you know, you have like, you know, a, a, a way to look at that. Yeah. And that's actually, I, I'm glad you brought that up because that's what I typically will do when I do my assessments. So, um, you know, most, most speech pathologists who even do feeding and infant feeding are not trained on tongue ties. It's, it's, you know, again, another profession where for me, it just wasn't, it wasn't discussed in school. Um, you know, OMDs or ophacial myofunctional disorders were not taught. There was this whole like issue of you don't do non-speech oral motor exercises and this whole big thing back when I went to school. And I think it's changing now um, because our national organization, ASHA, has finally included or brought it back into our scope on their website, um, OMDs and treating, you know, myofunctional disorders and kind of looking at it starting at birth with infant feeding, which is very different when you're talking about, you know, the under four-year-old age um, as far as oral motor development goes and how we treat that. It's not myofunctional therapy when they're that little. Um, it's really feeding therapy. But most speech pathologists, even though feeding is within our scope and OMDs are within our scope, don't have any experience with this. Uh, And I think that is, I think we're on the forefront. I think they're changing that. And I heard recently, and I don't know if this is totally hearsay or not, but I heard that they're going to start to require this at some point in 2020. Um, And I really hope they do require it as part of the graduate, you know, and or undergraduate program, because I think the information needs to be out there for our profession, since feeding and swallowing is what we do. Um, But what made me think about all this is when I assess a baby, I am looking to see, you know, when I pull their chin down, where is their tongue? Is their tongue resting up in the mouth? So they may appear tongue-tied, but where is the tongue resting? And where is the tongue when they're nursing or when they are drinking from the bottle? You know, is it coming forward over their, their teeth and their lip? You know, are they, is it bunching back? And, you know, we're looking at all of these things. And again, that's more anatomy, but then that impairs function if they are not feeding well. Um, and so how... What, what function is impaired and where do we draw the line? Like you said, between who gets treatment and who doesn't as far as a phrenectomy releasing right. that tongue tie. Um, when they're older, it's much easier because I can take measurements. I can look at how easy it is for me to lift the tongue versus them to lift the tongue. We can do three to four weeks of therapy and I can see what range of motion can be gained because sometimes, and this is not my expertise knowing all the different, you know, um, fibers and everything in the tongue. But, um, you know, I know, I feel like there's tension in the tongue surrounding that tie sometimes. And if we can relax the rest of the tongue, if we can get some function gained in the rest of the tongue, then my eyes usually are able to see whether or not that tissue down the midline is too tight, or if we feel like it's elastic enough that we can proceed with myofunctional therapy without referring out, you know, to see you, for example, for a a phrenectomy consult. Um, So, you know, that's where I think it's a really great topic because 
I see this all over Facebook these days where people are going, well, no, we should just release everybody who has a tongue tie. I'm like, but by definition, in my opinion, a tongue tie has to have some impaired function before we're going to release it and truly consider that a tie. So thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I, I like reasons for doing things. Yes. Um, and I like, you know, reasons are necessary. Um, just because they have a, a tie, right, doesn't necessarily mean they need it corrected. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a good point. I mean, there there are some instances where I just don't know, you yeah. know, whether or not we should correct it, and and that's always been my approach. You know, if it's an easy, if it's an easy decision, the parents want to nurse long term. They're having difficulties. You know what I mean? They've like exhausted all other ways of trying to figure this out, then yeah. I always say, yes, I think this is the way to go. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, it may or may not work. Um, chances are it probably will, but I need to let you know that it won't. It may not. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously taking a conservative approach is always the best, unless it's like severe and then you need to be aggressive or do it quickly, you know, like early age. So early age uh, infants, you know, under two weeks of age mm -hmm. uh, have a much better response um, by relearning behavior um, and relearning feeding and nursing uh, versus what they're, you know, what they're used to. Mm -hmm. um, the flexibility, I just want to mention this, the, the flexibility of the, of that frenum is super important because one of the things that, that initiates the suck reflex is compression between the upper jaw and the lower jaw. And if you don't get that compression, you can't swallow. Mm -hmm. So what I always tell parents is try and swallow by separating your teeth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can't Not do easy. It. <laughs> <laughs> right. And infants don't have teeth, right? Yeah. So they have to use their tongue. So the tongue extends over the gums, compresses that, and it also compresses the soft palate. Um, there's an elegant study that um, David Elad did. For, he's in Tel Aviv. Um, and he used ultrasound with Catherine Jenna Watson to look at the functional dynamics of how the tongue works and nursing works, which was a great study. Um, and this, I think, will be... This is what we hope to get in the next couple of years is have a dynamic functional study to assess so that you can put the um, baby on the breast, use an ultrasound machine to look under the tongue and look at the function of the tongue. And you can see exactly where the problem is. Is it a motor function? Is it the tongue not going in the correct position? You know, because now there's lots of historical data of how, um, breastfeeding works and how bottle feeding works. Mm -hmm. And he's going to put out a new study if he hasn't already very soon about bottle feeding and actually how turbulent the flow is versus breastfeeding and how the, the flow dynamics are much different with the bottle. Mm -hmm. um, but they're very, very elegant studies. He's like a mathematician and uses math to figure these That's things so out. Cool. <laughs> Unbelievable. That's amazing. So we will, uh, we'll find those studies and whatever is available currently, we'll put that in the show notes as well. So people have access to those. I have those. So I can send those to you. Awesome. Thank you. So um, I guess as far as, you know, we've talked about how there really is just no standard of um, a definition for tongue types. And that's kind of, that's what you were aiming to create with the Delphi survey. Do you feel like this is something that I'm looking at it here? I have it in front of me as far as the criteria and everything. Um, is this something that you're currently using in, in your practice as well? It is, yes. So this is something that I'm using in my practice. There, um, there was one part of this study that we spent hours deliberating. And this was the, so there's two pathways to diagnose a tongue tie mm -hmm. uh, using this for research, for a research model. 
Okay, so this is, I just want to make sure that that's clear. This is basically for a research model. The first is the anterior, right, placement of the frenum to the tip of the tongue, right, within four millimeters or so. The second one was nursing difficulties, but the way that we um, described it was inability to elevate the tongue. So this also raises a lot of questions. Now, how do you measure the objective nature of ability to elevate the tongue? Mm -hmm. So we talked for hours about whether or not and how to include this. And we even thought about going back to the Delphi study, another one to be to define what <laughs> the elevation of a tongue would be considered. Um, and so this, unfortunately, it's not 100%, but I think it will help. Uh, what, I, what I use is I, I say uh, nursing difficulties instead of um, the um, inability to elevate the tongue. Okay. The inability, inability to elevate the tongue um, is in my, the way that I look at this is when they cry, if the tongue is sort of stuck to the floor of the mouth or showing less than, I don't know, you can, this is very subjective. So between 20 and 30% of the oral cavity, right? Cause when you release the tongue and it, and the baby and the infant cries and you see, uh, you know, more than 80% of the oral airway covered by the tongue, this is a good indication that there's no tethering. And I also like this word a lot, actually tethering. Yeah, I like that too. Hence the untethered podcast. <laughs> um, well, I have, and I have a question for you. So I don't know if you're familiar with or if you've ever used um, Roberta Martinelli's uh, assessment protocol, the lingual frenulum protocol for infants. Are you familiar with that yes. one? Okay. Yes. Um, and I don't know if you have an opinion on it or not. That's something that when I first, and, and now I kind of use my own conglomerate of like various resources when I assess an infant, but that's what I started with because they had pictures in the assessment protocol. And so, you know, I looked at the lip posture as well as the tongue posture and the shape of the tongue and, you know, does the tongue, um, the shape of the tongue apex, does it elevate, you know, when, when they're crying or if I try to elevate it, you know, what happens? Is it round? Is it V-shaped? Is it heart-shaped? Right. Um, you know, how visible is the front? Um, you know, so that's how thick is it, you know? kind of going through her protocol, um, do you feel like there's any way, because I know it's, it's kind of challenging to measure these things on an infant, other than, like you said, it's subjective, um, visualizing these things. Do you have any tips for anybody who's doing these types of examinations who, are, who may be looking at a tongue and going, I'm really not sure what I'm looking at or how to tell if this tongue is elevating enough, um, aside from like appearing to have somewhat of a blocked, you know, how much of the airways Right. That's a very good question. Uh, I struggle with this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm just curious, and I'm like, sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> no, 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 it's okay. I, I, I use lots of, lots of research, anything that I can find to sort of help my own clinical practice. I typically, um, and I, I really like this case definition. Um, I really like this case definition. So the first part of it is the, is the objective nature of it. Yeah. And then you get into the subjective nature of it. I. I, in my personal um, practice, uh, you need the elevation, the inability to elevate the tongue with two other um, of the identifiers there. Mm -hmm. And I actually, I use three um, just okay. to be safe. And I don't use elevation of the tongue. I just, I, I replace that with inability or difficulty with nursing. Okay, perfect. So I think that's, that's, that's very helpful. And then, you know, I guess my other question then is, 
what I'm seeing a lot of on Facebook groups because, you know, Facebook is like the new Google. If it's on Facebook, yep. it must be true. Um, <laughs> I see people having these battles and this is, these are professionals even within the professional groups over, you know, someone saying, well, I assessed this child and they came to me because they think the child has a tongue tie or an infant really, but the infant is feeding fine right now. And my initial response to that is, well, if the function is not impaired, why are you going to do anything? Like let this baby continue to, you know, develop as they're developing. And if we hit a wall at some point or we start to have concerns about any various areas of development, let's address it then. And there's other people who are who are less conservative, you know, than we are, um, who are saying, well, no, we see that anterior tie, like you're mentioning, you know, but I don't know that they're considering the elasticity of the frenulum or if, you know, they're just going, well, we should just cut it now to be safe because we know of all the things that could possibly happen down the line, you know, myofunctional disorders and feeding and speech and right. you know, posture and dental and whatever, um, airway, you know, and I think there's almost this fear developing in the among some professionals that if they don't treat it, you know, am I at fault for something that's later to come? And I just think that's, you know, we're opening Pandora's box there by just releasing everybody. Um, so do you, I know we've kind of talked about that a little bit, but you know, do you ever assess somebody when they're really, really little and not released and feel like they come back later? And like, do you see a high rate of people coming back to have those releases down the road because other issues develop? Or is that not really something that you've seen? The answer is yes and no. So sometimes uh, we see them come back and sometimes we don't. Um, and there's, I haven't really looked at the specific numbers of them. My practice, what I typically do is I, I, I take the stance of informing the patients. And I think parents are really good uh, advocates for their own infants. Mm -hmm. And they're capable of making decisions on their own as long as they have the information. So my role is just providing the information, giving them the information that we know. I let them know what we know, what we don't know, where the areas are gray, uh, what could potentially happen. But I can't predict the future. I can't yeah. predict how well they're going to do or, how, or if, they're if they're going to struggle. Yeah. Um, so this is a difficult part. And then I just say, listen, you know, um, you know, if this were my child, this is what I would do in this mm -hmm. scenario. Um, but you know, you're their parents. So you need to make that decision for yourself and you can always do this. It's not something that you can undo, but right. you can, I mean, you can, if you really want to. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why you'd want to, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, um, I think the most important factor is, is, is providing and giving the parents the information that they need to make an informed decision. And that's really what it comes down to is, inf is informed consent mm -hmm. um, of things that are true and things that aren't. For example, there's, um, there's a position that um, you want to correct the lip ties because you want to prevent decay in the uh for bottle feeding and for um things like that and and my position always has always been you know i haven't seen any real research that shows that i've seen case studies that show that but i don't think it's because of the frenum i think it's lack of brushing you know mm -hmm. what i mean <laughs> so i think if you brush the teeth you know then you won't get the k um yeah. you know and my position has been like you know when i argue that point and they, uh, some people get super offended by that <laughs> point in that position is, as I say, well, I can prevent decay by taking out all the teeth. Would you prefer I do that? 
<laughs> You're like reality here. Let's bring right. you reality. <laughs> well, so, I say, Lily yeah. had a really, you know, nice lip tie and her teeth look great <laughs> exactly. so, because we brushed them really well. Right. Exactly. So, you know, and, you know, and then there's the position, um, you know, oh, they'll fall and break it. Yeah. And that does happen. It doesn't always happen. Yeah, and I've seen you know, it. If once. it happens, it happens. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not anything that you can predict. Um, or uh, use as a way of treatment. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen it once, and it's usually with, you know, at least in this case, the child had some major spatial awareness, sensory, like full body things going on, and they right. plant often, so it was, it was bound to happen. But I, yeah, that's not something I see that often, so right. uh, it's always interesting when people bring that up. Um, all right, and then my, I have one more question for you, and then if you wanna add anything else, we can absolutely do that. Um, but since we're kind of, we're talking about tongue ties and, you know, releasing ties, um, when you get these babies in there, you know, I think I was very lucky to have brought uh, Mia, my second one, to you on day five of life and we released her and immediately I felt the difference and she, you know, we had some other PT things, you know, full body things that we worked through with her getting everything aligned. Um, but as far as her feeding went, that that was that was much improved, I think, because we were within that first two windows as you that first two weeks window that you mentioned. But do you feel like some of these babies who got released, you know, let's say outside of that window um, within the first six months, do you see them coming back to you because you know you you didn't you weren't able to get as deep of a release as you had liked because they were an infant? Um, like is that something that ever happens? Because I have a lot of parents ask me about, you know, oh well. You know, so-and-so said they had to go back for a revision when the child was, you know, starting to go onto solids because they started having more feeding issues and they realized that, you know, the tongue had reattached or that the tongue, you know, was not released. It was released more anteriorly and not a lot, not as much posteriorly. And they feel like there's more of a posterior issue that's coming into play now. Is that something that you see or not really? Um, I didn't so see it with my own child and you released her, but I'm just curious what people ask me. Sure. Um, it, for, so for the age group, the age group of over, say, a year, mm -hmm. um, I typically will put sutures in to prevent reattachment because I find that, you know, the other issue is, is I don't like to put the success of the procedure in the parent's hands. Yes. Um, <laughs> for that. <laughs> so, you know, you can release it, but, you know, it's quite difficult sometimes in the age group of the adolescents. Uh, who are speaking and eating now yeah. um, and they're not going to let you in their mouth and now they have yeah. teeth and they can bite your fingers. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I always say as soon as they, you know, one, one on up, <laughs> even through adulthood, it's really hard to find somebody who will actually be able to do the active wound care on you. Cause I feel like it's better for someone to do it on you versus you doing it yourself. Um, right. It was hard for me and I'm in this profession when I was doing, you know, my own active wound care after, after my release. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I think, uh, you know, in the, in the infant stage, um, I typically will open them, but, um, we've changed our, our protocol for healing and exercises and stretches. So we really focus it to just keeping, um, space between the tissue. Mm -hmm. Um, so our, our recommendations are, you know, one an hour of getting in and elevating the tongue, holding it for a couple of seconds and letting it go for the first week. Um, this is the only thing that I want them to do. They can do other things if they really want to trace the gums and other exercises and things like that. But I find after mm -hmm. a week, that's really, you just want the healing to yeah. occur without having the reattachment. And I've, what I found in my practice is by doing it that, that much, 24 times a day, 
between 24 and 30 times a day is that the reattachment rate has gone way down. I haven't actually seen any reattachments since we started doing it this way. Oh, that's great. And are you just having them go and like lift, hold it for kind of like three to five seconds and then release? Exactly. Yeah, okay. just release. And then like, you know, I also say like, don't wake them up. Like, you know, right. when they cry, you have perfect access. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, diaper changes. So there's plenty of opportunity to get in there. You know, if they're sleeping for a couple of hours, then the next couple of hours, you know, you get in there and do it a couple of times mm -hmm. and then you get to the 25. I, parents typically will get to 20. Some of them will get to 30. If they do get to 30, the tissue is completely healed by the time that um, they come and see me in a week. And then the second week we do um, different stretches and exercises that fall along more of the lines that you would recommend. Mm -hmm. um, and this just helps with the function. So now we've dealt with the healing mm -hmm. and now we're working with the function. Um, so that sort of keeps the reattachment rate much lower. And I also find that in the adolescent group and the age groups of like two to three to four stitches and, and even adults stitches are the way to go. I, I like closing the wounds because I don't like them to, um, have the reattachment and I, I can predictably keep that reattachment from happening by putting, by getting primary closure. I tell my clients, they're like, well, when you do the sutures, that really helps it heal long and strong. And they seem to like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, and then we can work on everything else we need to do because now we know it's not going to reattach. <laughs> so I love when you use sutures. That's fantastic. <laughs> that's good. I like that. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's really helpful. Thank you. And so that's interesting too. Um, and something that we should definitely discuss because I think that you know, during that healing period and during that first week, I tried to tell parents that sometimes it'll feel like the baby starts to feed better. And then around day three and four, you know, I feel like sometimes inflammation can pick back up and baby may be more uncomfortable, you know, just it's the yep. healing process, right? So I think less we can do in the baby's mouth um, while they're healing that first week, but while keeping the wound open, you know, kind of minimizing their parents' responsibility because we already know they're still going to be struggling likely with feeding if they're, you know, older than a couple weeks old. Um, baby might, might feed well right away, but that's not always the case, at least not with right. my clients. So, um, you know, I think that's really great. And that's something that I, I want to implement in my practice. So thank you for sharing that. And it waxes and wanes. I mean, they, they go through periods and I, I agree with you, letting the parents know what to expect certainly helps them minimize their frustration. So, mm -hmm. you know, when you say, listen, you're going to struggle with this, you know, the first session, you're going to, it's going to be wonderful. And then the next couple ones, you're going to be like, what happened? Why did we do this? Like, yeah. it, it's not like the first session. And I think letting them know that upfront, it really helps um, ease their mind because yeah. they, you know, they can really panic. I mean, and yeah. for good reason. Yeah. Right. right. Well, when you're in your main job is just to get that baby fed and baby's not eating, yeah. very stressful. Yeah. So, um, no, I think that's really wonderful that you kind of minimize what you're giving them, especially that first week while everybody's kind of healing together. <laughs> um, that's really awesome. Um, well, thank you. This has been amazing. Is there anything else that you want to add that we have not touched on? Um, no, I think we covered everything that, um, that I would have liked to have covered. Is there uh, anything that you'd like to no, I think we covered everything. So thank you. Um, we will include everything that we discussed. You know, we'll include your Delphi study as well as the research you discussed out of Israel. Um, and I know we even mentioned like the Kotlo classifications. And so if anybody has questions about that, um, you know, you can look up Kotlo and there are so many different classification systems out there that, you know, depending yeah. who we're speaking to, everybody <laughs> seems to be using different 
classification yeah. systems. Um, but if you're new to that topic, you know, you can Google that and usually pull the picture of what his. Yeah, we, we, we like to hope we our, our hope is, is that this is this becomes the new standard mm -hmm. for, uh, yeah. for um, classifications. Of, of yeah. Systems. Yeah. So, yeah, if you're if you're looking for a classification system, you'll want to check out the Delphi survey that we're going to link here that we've talked a lot about in this. Uh, podcast episode because it has really great criteria, I think, to help figure out, you know, when it is truly a tongue tie and when that, that tie is functionally impacting that, that infant. So thank you. Thank you again for joining us today. Thank you, Hallie. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you want to hear more of these Mayo Tots airway and feeding related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash the untethered podcast. If you found value, others you know in this space will too. So be sure to share this episode on your social media platforms and join us over on Facebook, on my Facebook page at Hallie Balkan Biz, on Instagram at, at Hallie Balkan. And you can head over to untetheredpodcast.com to grab a copy of the show notes where you can also subscribe to be kept up to date on the latest podcast episodes. Big shout out to Dana McKay, podcaster extraordinaire, for editing and helping me keep this podcast alive.